Hey, what's going on? Jason Bay here. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting. Thanks for checking out the podcast. I really believe if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, that Outbound is a game of odds. You know, and in order to get better results, we have to make better decisions about how we communicate with prospects in our cold emails, our cold calls, our LinkedIn messages. And I'm on a mission at Blissful Prospecting to help reps and sales teams turn complete strangers into paying customers. So if that's something that you're into doing, you're definitely in the right place today. We are talking to Ian Koniak about how he earned seven figures, became a number one rep at Salesforce, and has landed $100 million in career sales. Let's get to the episode. One thing that I consider big treat is getting to talk to people that are just at the very top of their game, you know, the top 1%. And uh, Ian's one of those guys that you might actually put in the top 1% of the top 1%. There aren't a lot of sales reps out there that make over a million dollars in a year. Ian's one of them. And I don't know if there are a lot of them. <laughs> He's one of the about two other people that, that I know or have heard of that have made that uh, kind of money. But the interesting part that I learned from this conversation that I think that you will find very interesting is how much of this was mindset. I mean, he's going to share some stuff with you about how to write emails and what a good message might sound like. But to be perfectly honest, and I said this to him, I, I don't mean this in an insulting way at all. It's not like the copywriting is world-class in these emails. There's something that he does that is just so far above and beyond what I see most reps do. And it's this inward versus outward focus. He's so focused on how to make his clients successful. He doesn't just talk about it, doesn't just give it lip service. He really believes in helping his clients become successful. And he focuses so much on that that his prospects look at him like a trusted advisor. So what he's going to talk about is how to you know, add value and understand impact, but really understand change and what it takes to land a million dollar deal. And even if you are not selling deals that are that big, which I don't, I don't sell anything close to a million bucks, you're still gonna learn a lot. And what he's gonna really dissect is how to have executive level thinking. So what do executives care about? Because if you wanna land big deals, you gotta talk to the C-suite. You gotta be able to get meetings with C-suite and VP type folks that can really make change in the organization. He's going to run you through his research process. So he has these kind of buckets that he looks at. What can I learn about the individual, about the company, and then how to develop a point of view and perspective that is authentic. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. There's a ton of just really good stuff in this episode. So I'm excited for you to check it out. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. So I have to ask you because one thing I regret not studying in college was psychology. And I noticed that you studied psychology at UC Berkeley. Is there any of what you learned there applicable to what you've been doing in sales or anything like that? Was it worth it? <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is I, I studied psychology because I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And that was like, it sounded interesting, but 
I would say no. Oh, really? Honestly, it's, 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 it was in Berkeley. It was very much like psychology as a focus point of like the brain and different types of symptoms and, you know, studying ADHD or depression or molecular cell biology and why certain brains are wired that way versus like the interpersonal kind of communication aspect of different personality types and how you engage or communicate with them, which would have been more applicable in sales. But people think like, oh, the psychology is selling, but you know, it really was the science of psychology versus like the inner workings or interpersonal relations of psychology element of it. So I think, I mean, like anything, right. A lot of the college topics that you study may not necessarily translate or apply directly to real real world experience. And it was the same in in psychology for me anyway. So if we kind of start with, and, uh, you know, if people are unaware of maybe of your experience, that might be a good place to start. From my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, what I read on LinkedIn is uh, you've been a number one rep at Salesforce. You obviously have your own business now, helping account executives and people in enterprise sales. You've landed over $100 million in career sales. You've just done a lot of big things. And I think that, like, to start, what do you feel like to really make a dent in the enterprise and to achieve at the level that someone like you has? And there's several other people that we look up to as well. What's the mental game, you know, behind this before we get to any of the tactics and all that kind of stuff, what's the mental side of this look like? How do you think about that part? Yeah. So to give a little bit of history and background, I, you know, I was at Salesforce for eight years before uh, leaving almost nine years, but eight full years. And then I went on paternity leave. And in the first four years were pretty rough. And I had come from like selling copiers and having a lot of success and growing a big, you know, business in that area to, to moving into enterprise software. And I really did treat it as a transactional type of sales. You know, I, I try and close the business quickly, handle the objections, go in and do as much activity as I could and, you know, take the way that I always knew sales to be and try to apply it to software. And it didn't work. You know, I didn't, I wasn't starving. I was probably making between two and 300,000 my first four years at Salesforce. But in those years, you know, I, I hit plan once I hit 95% plan another year and I missed it pretty bad the other two years. So I was really kind of flying mediocre. And then the, the last Four years were were absolutely just incredible. I made a million dollars twice. I averaged seven fifty. I hit my my number all four years, and I finished number one one of the years, and in, in, in number four in the company the other year. So it's like I went from this average to superhuman. And the biggest thing that changed, I get this asked a lot. The biggest thing that changed was my mindset. So when you ask about like the mindset and what was needed, I didn't really do things that much different, but the way I thought was very, very different. And the, the big shift was in the first four years, I was thinking about myself. I was thinking about how I could hit quota, my activity, my income, my commission, me, 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 me. And I didn't get the results I want wanted and I beat myself pretty badly. And that kind of started my journey into personal development. And I ended up investing in a coach, joining a mastermind similar to the one that you probably were on, going to seminars and immersion events and really going all in on this investing myself. And and they didn't teach me sales. They taught mindset. And the biggest thing they taught was it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about others and what you're here to do for others. And, And that really is the common denominator I see with the top performing enterprise account executives is they're not making about them and their goals. It's, it's really trying to understand their customers in a deep, deep, meaningful way, You know, understand their business, really understand how they make money, understand their challenges, understand how decisions are made, 
and really build those connections and try to go really deep into making a big impact on their customer's business. And, and that was the biggest shift that I made was really, you know, starting to say like, instead of how can I make this much money or sell this much, it was how can I really, you know, solve my customer's biggest problems, be a trusted advisor, learn their business and actually make an impact on their lives, their employees' lives, their customers' lives and their customers' customers' lives. And it, and it became this different lens from which I viewed sales versus trying to hit a number. So that was really, really key. And that required me going much higher up in, in the organization and actually talking to executives who you know, had a lot to gain or lose from you know, what I was selling over at Salesforce. Whereas before I was very comfortable playing in kind of that departmental lower level because I didn't feel like I could add value or had anything to talk about with these executives. But once I realized that what we were selling truly could change the entire nature of their business, then I, I knew it was my duty to go to those executives. And so after that fundamental shift in how I viewed my job and, and made it going from inward to outward, everything changed. And that's that's when I got the best results in my career. Oh, dude, there's so much to unpack here. I want to peel the layers of the onion back around this inward versus outward focus. You hear that a lot in sales. A lot of the advice is to focus on other people. Why don't you think people actually make that change or what do you feel holds them back or is there something they misunderstand maybe about that concept because it's a very simple concept but why don't more people adopt this way of thinking because they care more about their own success and their customer success i think fundamentally why are you doing what you're doing if you're really doing it just to make as much money as you can and to you know to do things that are going to benefit you versus actually really putting yourself in your client's shoes and treating as if you work for your client and really trying to make them successful. There's so many reasons, but I think that's a big part of it is sales. You know, a lot of people get into sales because they want to make as much money as possible because they want to be in a job where there's no limits, there's no ceiling, and they get paid based on their performance. And so when you get into sales, you're, you know, you're entering a scoreboard culture, you're entering a, a culture where you're compared to one another, where the person making the most money is celebrated and put on stage. And, you know, it becomes easy and natural to want that to be the motivation for you to be number one, to be the motivation. And when you're doing that, it just gets ingrained in, in how you show up and, and you get commission breath. And it's not that people don't care about their customers. Of course, they don't want to like screw their customers or they don't want to like, you know, sell them something that's not going to work, but they're more concerned about getting the sale than actually doing the right thing or, or making their customers successful. So I think it's ingrained sometimes. And, and some of it's also the, the culture of the company and, you know, you know, selling stuff. Now we have to close this business this month and do what you need to do to get the deal done versus like doing the right thing. Right. So I think if you work for a company that, you know, really does play the long game and, you know, looks at, especially in the enterprise, these deals sometimes are, are several years to close. And if you have a company that gives the the account directors, you know, or account executives the space and the flexibility to not have to make the short-sighted wrong decision in favor of doing what's going to help ultimately the customer and your own company get a much bigger deal downstream, having that patience, not having these monthly or quarterly quotas, but more of an annual type target, that helps a lot. And I was fortunate where Salesforce and I worked for great leaders that saw I was doing the right thing and didn't give me that pressure where I had to, to close a deal this quarter at the expense of maybe something bigger that would be next year or next quarter, right? So I think a lot of it does have to do with sales culture and just how we're wired and needing to get that deal done. And in that process, you, you sometimes make compromises that are not in the best interest of the customer and ultimately end up hurting both of you. Love it. 
So you mentioned this trusted advisor. I love that term. In this adding value and really understanding the impact. So can you dig into that a little bit? And I'm kind of speaking to the person here that you mentioned it, that a person that's playing on the department level versus going up a layer, right, into the C-suite. For someone that's thinking, how do I build the freaking chops to become someone that an executive would feel like is worth talking? How did you become a trusted advisor? What were kind of some of the big key milestones and steps that that you uh, were thinking about there to become someone that they would actually get some value from talking to? There's two, I'd say, takeaways that will help you get trusted advisor status. The first is it has to do with the deal itself and what you're selling. So I know most of your audience is selling software, SaaS AEs. And when you sell software to the enterprise specifically, maybe not in a small company, a growing company where it's easy to adopt, but when you sell software to a large enterprise, you have to understand the biggest thing you're you're selling is not the software and what it can do. It's actually change in how they're doing business today. They're changing the way they're working. Maybe they're going from manual processes to automated. Maybe people's jobs are impacted. Maybe they have specialists who've been doing this thing and know this old system forever that now are, you know, what are they going to do? And they're raising their hand, making a stink. There's a lot of change that has to happen to actually deliver the outcomes that your product or service is offering. So when you show up as a trusted advisor, you're not just saying, oh, just use it and do this and that, and you'll be fine. You're actually listening and meeting people where they are so that you can put together a plan, not only for the technology that they're going to need, but how that technology is going to be implemented and adopted by the organization. In other words, who's going to be using what, if it's a new process, you know, helping them with identifying what that process could look like, connecting them with potentially other customers who have been on this journey before them, making sure you have a plan for training, or if you don't have a plan that you'll find the right partner that can help them with training. So it's really about the people, the process and the technology, right? The process of you know, how this is all going to work in their organization, fit in what they're doing, you know, having to migrate other systems or move off stuff. So a lot of times with these larger clients, we were developing a three-year roadmap with them where we'd start with the immediate need, but we'd look at gradually migrating off of legacy applications and showing them, hey, you had 15 things before, which was slowing you down. And now you're going to have two or three and you're going to be able to get all these benefits, but you're not going to be able to do it overnight. So instead of selling you 100% of what we're selling you right now, we're going to ramp you up to the product so you'll have time to adapt and use it. That's what trusted advisors do, whereas the, you know, the selfish salesperson will try and get the whole deal up front and have shelfware sitting for two years. And now the customer is basically like, great, this company sold us a bunch and we're paying for a bunch of stuff we can't use because we're trying to still drive adoption of those first couple products. So when you're selling a platform like Salesforce or a platform like a Microsoft or Google, where there's a lot of technology that comes with an enterprise agreement, right? You really do have to meet the customers where they are and help them with those immediate needs, but also look at kind of that long-term end game and show them a path of how they're going to get the bigger goals of why they're signing up in the first place. And that's what helps you beat point solutions as well, versus like that one thing they're looking at right now, which is a quarter of the cost is your product, right? Yeah. So if you could take yourself back to the Ian that was getting started at Salesforce that didn't quite have this business acumen yet, how did you build that business acumen? I know that's a huge kind of question, but how did you start to get some of this knowledge? Because I saw I, I made mistakes. I sold software that was never adopted 
because I didn't have a good partner to implement because the client raised their hand and said, we can do it ourselves. And after seeing over and over again, that clients who did it themselves were not successful. Then I said, I'm not going to sell you Salesforce if you don't have a partner to implement, because I know your team is completely constrained with resources. You're going to have to learn this. It's going to set you back a year if you try and like hire and ramp people and teach them, and you're not going to get what you want accomplished. So I'm not going to work with you unless you're willing to have a partner implement, right? So that was from seeing clients fail sometimes. It also was from just experience. When you you know see in, or in enough deals, you see pattern, you see you know consistent themes that come up. And so you find the right partners to help with implementation. You find the right references to connect people with. And the more deals you're in, the more experience you get, the more you can basically, you know, draw upon that and call upon that for future deals and say, hey, you know, I was working with this customer on this thing and it came up exactly this way. And here's how we handled that, right? A lot of it's just getting that firsthand experience. There's a guy, Brandon Fluharty, who I think you're familiar with. And, and he said this in a post this week, which I, I loved. And I want to I want to play it back for you. He said, and it was like the same thing for me. It was almost like a parallel universe he was living. He said, I didn't make a million dollars in sales until I'd been selling for the enterprise. It was my fourth year selling into the enterprise. So it was the same thing for me. My fourth year selling, that's when I cracked a million. And he said it was his 15th year in sales, exactly like me. Right. So a lot of this is an evolution. It's not, you know, tell your younger self, Ian, to do these things. You kind of have to live it and experience it firsthand. Because selling an enterprise takes a lot of patience. It takes, like these companies are not just going to flip a switch and completely change what they're doing overnight because you said so. They're thinking about, you know, how is this going to work in my current environment? They're thinking about, you know, how is this going to help me achieve my business goals? And they're thinking about, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is the effort that I'm going to have to put in to change out and, and, you know, migrate and train my team and, and put experts on this worth the outcomes that we're going to be getting in the solution. If it's not, and you're competing with other priorities, frankly, right? So with the smaller company, they're just moving so fast and they need stuff, right? And, and you can grow with them. Whereas with, with the large enterprise, they've been doing things a certain way for sometimes 10, 15, 20 years, and they've spent three, four, five years implementing these old systems that you're replacing and have people wrapped around it. You have to acknowledge that. You have to have a plan for it. You have to show them why, if they don't change what they're doing today, they're not going to be able to get where they want to go tomorrow. All this stuff, you don't just learn by reading a book or listening to a podcast. You learn by doing and, and failing. And before I got my biggest deal of my career, I actually lost my biggest one. So before I had my best year, I had missed quota three years in a row. It's like you, you kind of have to fail and learn. And I know it's cliche, but it really is the truth, especially in the enterprise. Like the experience of selling to large companies is the, the true test because a lot of people, they, they don't stick it out. They'll change companies, they'll move, but it's amazing the magic that happens in that third or fourth year when you're starting to see these patterns and, and adapt and focus on not just selling the software, but looking at how the client specifically, how it's going to fit into their environment fit in with their long-term plans, support their strategic initiatives, right? And how it's going to be an asset for them. And once you can kind of look at the big picture versus just this project and this product they're trying to buy, that's when you become a trusted advisor. That big picture piece, that's something that I think is like, what I got from you just now is understanding the ecosystem. I talk about positioning a lot with Outbound. And one of the things when I'm onboarding a client that I always ask them is, let's position your thing against the other alternatives out there. How would they solve this same problem, but in different ways? You know, And if it's 
a staffing company, let's say, that's selling something, there's a lot of different ways people can bring new hires in. You know, they could do it themselves. They could work with another staffing company. They could post job ads. There's all kinds of different ways that they could solve, you know, this problem and understanding what the available options are and how they think about it is kind of an interesting exercise. And I love what you said there too about thinking, how are they going to use this product in their business and what kind of support are they going to need that maybe we don't provide so that they can be successful with it? It's really this like immense amount of curiosity, it sounds like, around let's think bigger than what this transaction is. That's right. It's really the long term because if you do that and you get it right, then they're going to bring you in for everything. They're going to say Salesforce first. Let's look at Salesforce before we go and do these other things. And, and there's so much more that goes into this, Jason, than, than I'm just barely touching upon. But one thing you just mentioned, which I, I think is really good, is if you realize they do have all, another alternative, right? Or what they're doing today is actually okay. And they maybe don't need what you have because they're already on a path, which is pretty similar. And maybe it's not with you, but it's working or they're getting results. Like, that's trusted advisors say you're doing great here. And I actually wouldn't touch it. I wouldn't put Salesforce in because you have this thing. And, you know, I think we should focus in other areas. Right. So the nice thing is like, if you only have a hammer, you're going to look for just nails to bang, but, but Salesforce had a massive toolbox. We didn't have a toolbox. We had home Depot. We had a whole entire, like every appliance you could think of and every tool you could think of. We had Tableau and MuleSoft and Slack now and marketing cloud and, you know, it really was, and it forced me, I was an account director. And so I had, you know, over, over 200 products to sell. So I, all I could talk about was business problems and challenges and why there were challenges. And then I'd, you know, get the right person and the right team to come in and, and address those. And I was very fortunate because I was a, um, a, what you call a core account director. So I carried the entire bag and got paid on everything that was sold into the account, which let me truly be a problem solver or a generalist versus having to find a nail because I only had a hammer for one product. So that definitely helped, but I was forced to do that. That's why we have this account director position is really to work with the C-suite and to solve the biggest problems and bring in the collective might you know, of Salesforce. And sometimes I'd be selling seven or eight products from different divisions in one solution to solve you know, a very, very big problem that transcended across multiple departments. And that's how you get the million dollar deals is you're, you're selling more of a platform that touches everything versus one product that solves one problem. Dude, freaking love it. Let's talk about the outbound game now. So <laughs> how do we get our foot in the door, right? For lack of a better expression. And if you could first just quickly comment on from an outbound standpoint, what are the people that you've sold to? Can you just give us some perspective on what they are on the receiving end of from, because uh, I always say, you know, people always ask, what's your biggest competitor? And, you know, the common answer people say is, oh, it's status quo. It's doing nothing. Well, I think it's all of the other things vying for your prospect's attention. You know, all of the other salespeople that are hitting their inbox, their LinkedIn inbox, their voicemail, you know, whatever, selling all kinds of different stuff, not just your direct competitors, you know, but can you help us sit in the seat of an executive at one of these, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies that you've sold to? What's it like being on the receiving end of this? Yeah, I've been, you know, the founder and president of my own company for a couple of years. And I certainly, it's not a Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000, but I like to think that I, I do think like an executive and present myself. And I've met with so many executives. I am an executive. I have been an executive. And I think that's really important for sales professionals to think of themselves as executives. That's the 
foundation of something I teach is, you know, that we're all equal. Okay. When you look up to someone, you can't see them eye to eye, right? If you're looking up to them, they're looking down at you and you only get you know, push to the level that you sound like. So I think it's a great question. And thinking like an executive, they're thinking about first and foremost, their business. They're thinking about, you know, what's coming, not just in the next 90 days, but what's coming next year or the following year. Right. And I'll give you a a perfect example. One of the executives I work with, a guy named Chris Stewart, he's still a friend of mine, but he was the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. So the real estate brokerage with all of the different divisions in it across the country. And they had about 50,000 real estate agents. And what he was thinking about was that Zillow and Redfin were going to come eat his lunch and that his brokers were no longer relevant because a lot of the buyers now could find what they needed on online apps. And now these online apps were actually getting into the direct brokerage business where Redfin could have agents offered. And so how are we going to compete with these technology companies, right? He's also thinking, how am I going to attract and retain my agents from Compass, which is now hugely heavily funded from SoftBank and is literally buying the business and buying our brokerages and converting them over to Compass agents. So they're thinking about a lot of times what they have to lose and how can they position themselves strategically to avoid you know, um, losing employees or losing revenue or losing market share, right? It's on their mind. And, and so they're thinking about the big picture. How can we position our company? What are the strategic initiatives or, you know, actions that we need to take long-term to position ourselves to grow and to scale? And a lot of times in the enterprise, it lends itself to the natural conclusion of how can we become more agile as an organization? If we have, you know, when you're selling technology, if you have 200 different applications and they're all interconnected with like heavy, heavy legacy, you know, connections between each other, it's very hard to pull out one and have it connect to the ecosystem. So they're thinking, how can we get rid of this older kind of monolithic you know, stack of, of technology. And now I'm talking about kind of a CIO or a COO and be able to create, use technology for our advantage so we can move faster. So they're thinking about, you know, the long-term migrations that they might have to do to get off of a legacy ERP or to enable agility with, within their organization. And so when I did my larger deal with Berkshire Hathaway, what he was saying is, you know, we had, you know, 60 projects in flight. And only three were delivered on time and under budget. So he's thinking about like, okay, how can I put my, in 40 full-time IT people doing this? What are we actually getting from our technology? What are we delivering to consumers and to our agents as a result of this heavy, massive project? And what he concluded is we're not delivering much. We're just keeping the lights on. We're just maintaining the infrastructure. In order for us to advance and keep up with Zillow and Redfin, we need to completely upend what we're doing now and put in a platform that lets us move quicker. And that led to the largest deal of of my career, which was replacing all of these legacy applications with one unified platform. So, you know, you see the growth of companies like AWS and and Microsoft and and Google, and, and, you know, they're platform companies and Salesforce that are able to solve kind of this broader problem of introducing agility to the technology stack. And that's why Salesforce has bought companies like Tableau and MuleSoft to be able to, you know, connect to legacy systems or visualize data or communicate faster via Slack. And I just think it's brilliant in being part of that journey 
um, what we were able to do for our clients. But that that's kind of the way executives think is, you know, what's going to, what are the risks involved right now that are potentially going to lead us to fail as a business? And how can we mitigate those risks and, and be ahead of it three to five years down the road? They're not thinking about the project that's right in front of them. They're thinking about the big picture. Generally, they think about revenue. They think about profitability. They think about their employees and attracting and retaining employees. They think about their customers and how to keep their customers. And, and they think about their products and how to build best-in-class products. So at the executive level, as an executive, you're thinking very strategically. Okay. I'll give you one more example from my own business in my own coaching business. I have, as I shared with you, had explosive growth the past couple of years in my coaching program. And I have now 200 people that are on a wait list for coaching. So I've decided to not take any more clients. I'm going to say no to what I'm doing today so I can build a scalable online and group platform that can serve hundreds or thousands of people. So the executives are thinking forward of how can I scale and grow my business and be in these key markets. So for me, it means saying no to the immediate revenue so I can invest and build in something that will get much greater revenue and serve more people down the road. And that's kind of how they're thinking about their products and services. So the key is to have those conversations and get them to really share kind of what is top of mind for them. And the only way you do that is through, you know, creating a relevant point of view, a relevant message, really doing your research, doing your homework. And and that leads us to the outbound discussion, but it's a very long answer, but that's kind of what's on the mind of many executives these days. Well, I love this because that's a lot of what I come across in my work is this misunderstanding of what that C-level person cares about. Because a lot of people tend to take what would work for director level messaging and scale that up to the C level. And they talk a lot about metrics and very tactical kind of things that are, hey, that might get the attention of the director, but the C level person's like, oh, please talk to my so and so who manages this. I don't, I don't care about that. It doesn't make you look like a trusted advisor, it makes you look like an expert on your product, you know? So let's talk to the about the outbound piece. You have this thing called linkage. So how do you get ready for this prospecting piece from a research standpoint? How do you think about the research? Yeah. So there's three elements that I want to share in terms of how you prepare. And and I want to be really clear. This takes a lot of time and a lot of people are going to naturally dismiss it and say, I don't have time for that. And there's a principle in sales called the Pareto principle. And it's that 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your customers, right? It's the old 80, 20 rule. And so if you spend time Before you ever do any of this research or what I'm going to share, it's very important to pick your two or three or four or five accounts that you're going to do this with. And if you have a list of 100, you're not doing it for all of them or else you're not going to do it for any of them. You have to really bet and pick the right account. So that starts by understanding like who are your ideal customer profiles, what are the roles in which those type of accounts. Are we, are we selling to transportation and logistics? Are we selling to high tech? You know, is it government? Who are the industries that we do the best with? Okay. Then understanding like what are the problems that we solve at the highest level and who are the ones that are ripe to have those problems? Are we working with companies with a lot of knowledge workers versus a lot of you know, staff where they're hourly workers, for example. So really getting honed in on the types of clients that are going to be receptive to your message, I think is foundational. And from there, you distill it down to, you know, a few accounts that are going to be what you call your big bets, right? Your big bets for going into these accounts, right? So for me, once I decide my big bets, now I'm fortunate because Salesforce only gave us, you know, I only had two accounts my last year at Salesforce and it was always very 
you know, I started with 10, then five, then four, then finally three, and then two. So every year I got lower accounts, I actually did better, which is the complete opposite of what many A's. Hey, you're cutting my territory, F you. No, actually it lets you go deeper, right? Because these companies have thousands of employees. They have hundreds of departments and business units and subsidiaries in some cases. Like a lot of times we have teams on one account. So it really is because you want to be that trusted advisor. So if you're cold outbound and you know which accounts you're going for, you pick your few, you do three levels of research, right? The first research is the most important, and that's the individual research, okay? So let's say what I'm selling is relevant for a CRO, for example, right? Or a CMO, whatever, you know, title or role. I'm going to go and I'm going to pick the CRO, but I'm also going to pick the SVP of sales, the head of sales operations, maybe the head of sales enablement, maybe the head of marketing. So you want to have you know, four or five people within each of those accounts that you're going to go after to do this individual research. So in this case, we're using the example of the CRO. What I'm going to do, and it's, it's pretty common knowledge, it's pretty basic, but almost nobody I know does this, is first and foremost, I'm going to go to their LinkedIn page. I'm going to check for connections, common connections, try and get an intro. I'm also going to see what they're posting if they're active on LinkedIn. And I'm going to try to find what they're saying that's relevant to the problem I solve, or at least that they're sharing their goals that I can map to when I do some outbound emails. Okay. You're trying to find anything. It doesn't need to be perfect. Ideally, they've shared an article. There was a press release. If there was a podcast, that they went on, I'm going to listen to the whole entire thing. And I'm going to grab a few key points that resonate with what I sell so that I can bring it back and say something along the lines of, you were on this podcast, you talked about driving growth, you talked about attracting and retaining employees and the challenges you're having around keeping your best account executives. And you know this really resonates. I specialize in helping you know large enterprise companies develop best-in-class training programs focused on helping them sell. Not only this will this help you with your revenue goals, but this is also going to help you attract and retain your talent because you're giving them best-in-class training. Would you be open for a conversation, right? So it's taking what they said and then linking it back to your value proposition. Now, with the linkage, I always try to be really direct in what I do. I'm not vague. I don't want to sound like everyone else. I want to actually tell them what I do and how I can help. I'm not going to write them an essay in a long, you know, 10 paragraph email, but I do want to call out a couple things that, you know, I do specific to what they shared and then, you know, give a call to action. Okay. So that's the individual research is really going on their LinkedIn, seeing how long they've been at the company, what they've shared, listening to their podcast. Sometimes these folks, they're executives at big companies. So a lot of times they're giving keynotes, they're being quoted, right? So for me, it's really, really important to establish that strong linkage versus like a weak linkage, right? If you say, hey, you're trying to grow sales and, you know, and keep your employees and I have a, a servers that can, you know, then that can help you speed up your app performance. Like there's no linkage there, right? So it, I see that a lot. I see some people saying, you know, you said this and this and here's how I can help. And there's nothing to do with what I said. So make it relevant. I remember one time, it doesn't even have to be about your product or service. Okay. It doesn't even need to be. One time I listened to, it was an account. It was a chief customer officer and she was talking about her fight with cancer and her husband keeping her grounded and how she approached her battle with cancer, the way she approached her work. And it really resonated with me because at the time I was going through some health struggles and fighting through it. And I just put that in the note. I said, I just want to say how inspired I was 
listening to your podcast. I'm going through some health challenges and I'm approaching it the same way. And it's great to see you come out of this. The reason I'm reaching out is I am your account executive at Salesforce. I specialize in helping chief customers, officers in these areas. And I'd really love the opportunity to learn what's top of mind for you as far as your customer experience right now in what you're trying to deliver. You talked a lot about goal setting on your your podcast, but I want to know what your goals are for your customer journey. Would you be open to, you know, Salesforce helps helps in this area. Would you be open to a discussion? And she right away booked a meeting. So, so sometimes the linkage could be on a personal level if something resonates. If, you know, they, they have a passion about autism, you know, support, and you you have a child that's autistic, which in my case we do, I would potentially bring that up, right? It has to be authentic and it has to be real. So that's the hard part is like doing this research and finding something that really is going to resonate. That's the first part of it. And the second part of it is follow-up, right? It does take seven, eight times sometimes before you can book a meeting. So even with that perfect message, you still have to follow up via email, phone call. People are afraid to pick up the phone a lot of times these days. I'll call their cell phone directly and I'll reference the email and sometimes they didn't even open it, right? So I think it's really important to treat executives the same way you would treat other folks and not be afraid to follow up or call their cell phone because at the end of the day, they're just people. So that's my approach to outbound. If I can't get individual research done, if there's nothing online or they're not active on LinkedIn and they're just kind of just hidden in, in the public eye, then I'll start doing account research. I'll look at what their account is selling. I'll look at what their you know goals are in their press releases. I'll go to their executive bios and I'll see what is said about their executives, news. And I'll, if it's possible, I'll become their customer. I'll literally go through their customer journey and see what it's like on the other side. Being at Salesforce, you know, naturally we could help from all aspects of, of customer engagement from the time you raise your hand to the time someone calls or customer support, right? I'd go through one of my accounts experience. I went through and, you know, got hung up on a few times, you know, as a customer when I was there and I could reference that experience of going through their call center and how frustrating it was to go through an IVR system. So becoming a silent shopper of the customers is part of that research that I do. Become a customer of your customers. If you don't have time to do that, or if it's not like a B2C product you can do that with, then certainly going online and trying to get whatever you can from their site or learning about the products and services and really trying to study what they're saying and then establishing that same linkage back to their account research that you've done versus the individual research. It's still the same approach. The last part of this is coming up with your point of view, right? So once you research what they're saying or what the account is saying, you come up with a point of view on how and where you think you can help them. Now, it may not hit the mark because you haven't done any discovery yet, but if you know the problem you solve, if you know how you've helped other customers that are similar in their industry, you certainly can come up with a, a pretty relevant point of view that, that will resonate. And so those are the three elements that I do before I ever do outbound is I, I do the individual, the account, and I develop my point of view. And I use that point of view in the linkage so I can share how I think we can help them. And that might take two hours right? For one email that I send, it might take half a day. It might take longer if I become a silent shopper. But again, if you are only doing this for a handful of accounts, all you need is one or two deals for the whole year. And you can be two, 300% of your plan. Brandon Fluharty is a great example. His average deal size is over a million dollars, right? And he is absolutely crushing it from very, very few deals each year, but they're the right deals. And so that's the same approach I took at Salesforce. It was, it was really getting out of that small departmental and really thinking about the big picture problems. And the only way you can ever identify what those problems are and then reference those problems on your outbound is if you 
take the time to research. And, and of course, if it's a public company, you can get their 10Ks, you can get their you know, um, quarterly earnings report, you can get all this stuff online in their investor page, which makes it a lot easier to kind of reference how you can help based on what they you know, are trying to do, because they literally call out everything they're trying to do in those documents. Let's talk about that investor page, because that's something I've been talking to a lot of people a lot of, uh, about, too, is Seeking Alpha. And you can see quotes from C-level people on there specifically talking about what they're planning on doing. It's kind of crazy how useful the information is and how easy it is to get on you know, Seeking Alpha or whatever the tool that you use. How do you leverage quarterly earnings reports, 10Ks, that kind of stuff? Are you looking for specific quotes in there? Is that kind of the best best way to to use those? How do you how do you recommend someone? Because what, what I've done a lot of a lot of is the annual report. So most companies that are public will have an annual report where it's like a hundred pages. A lot of times it's really slick. It's in a PowerPoint or a nice package PDF. And they literally go from department to department to department or business unit to business unit and talk about what everyone's doing. And the authors of that are often the, the presidents of those business units or the CEO of that division or something. For the bigger companies, they have a lot of different divisions. And so that has more meat in it than the quarterly reports have done. In the quarterly, usually what I'm doing is I'm seeing you know how the company's doing. Is their stock growing? Are they if they miss their number, right? That's very relevant to what Salesforce sells, right? Because we're helping drive revenue growth. So I'm looking at overall performance in revenue. I'm looking at risks that they called out in their quarterly earnings report. And I'm looking for any initiatives or projects that you know they're working on that they're referencing there to use. But for me, I feel like a lot of the meat, you know, what what my typical playbook is at the beginning of the year when I get my accounts, I'll look at the annual reports, I'll read through heavily read through all of what's going on. And then I'll identify kind of 10, 15 executives in there that I can reach out to with that linkage. And, you know, I'll get my team involved. It's not just me doing all this. I'll have my marketing cloud reach out to marketing. I'll have my Tableau reach out to their BI division, right? So it is kind of a divide and conquer in the role that I was in. It was it was management team and putting people, but I was directing people where to go and, and relaying what they were trying to do as an organization. So I think it's just, it's not so much that the quarterly earning is going to give you this perfect linkage. It's more about knowing what's going on in their company. So you can adapt that to the point of view, but if they give you quotes, that's gold, right? If they give you projects, that's gold. Sometimes in the quarterly, you don't get that, but you always will get it in the annual. You always will get that in the annual. So point of view, I want to sort of end on this piece here. This is the part I see, because I work a lot in the messaging part of the, what to say in the email, what to say in the talk track, you know, that kind of stuff. Can you tell us more about the point of view? How do you think about it? How do you come up with the, the point of view? And this is, I, from what you shared earlier, it sounds almost like you're coming in with a hypothesis of based on this research that I've done, my guess is that you're probably running into these things that we might be able to help with based on work we've done with similar companies in a similar situation kind of thing. Like what's the, what's your advice on the- Do you want to see an example that was really, really good sure. um, that someone prospected me? So I go on a lot of these podcasts and- what I've, as my business has taken off, I've had less time to research the podcast that I want to go on and, and reach out. And I'm like, well, if someone approaches me, I'll usually go on if it's a reputable podcast. But, you know, I talked to you about this, actually, I wasn't doing it as much because I just didn't have the time to go and do that work. And I got an email um, maybe two or three months ago, and this was the email. It was from, and this is a great example, a guy named uh, Dana Lindahl, and I'm sure he'll love that I'm sharing this because it's promotion for him, but his company, he's the CEO of a company that 
does um, podcast outsourcing for entrepreneurs that want to go on podcasts. He'll reach out to them and basically do all the, they're an agency. So they'll find the podcasts that are relevant. They'll book it, they'll secure it. So, you know, he, he basically started with, you know, here's the research I've done. So he says, I was listening to some of the previous episodes on make it happen Mondays, really enjoyed the episode you recorded with John. So basically it's saying, Hey, I saw your stuff. And I really enjoyed reading about it or congratulations. So you're referencing the research. And then he gives a compliment and he says, it was great hearing about your experience about enterprise selling. Again, very relevant to me and what I talk about. It caused me to check out where else you've appeared. And I've now gotten a few loaded up in my plain X list. Very sincere, very authentic. And look at the spacing, right? Now he's going to transition to the problem, which is, it got me thinking, you're obviously very familiar with podcasting, but do you have a strategy for using them intentionally for business growth? So this is the problem statement. And here's the point of view that he shares, which is, I ask because we help our customers both to get booked onto top relevant podcasts, as well as to strategize and launch their own podcasts. Our whole focus is on saving our customers time, as well as using podcasting to advance their business goals. So in this one sentence, he gives that linkage and he shares a point of view on how he can help with the problem that he's run into that I actually happened to be facing at the time that he wrote me. And then there was the call to action. I'd love to chat about this sometime with you over the next week or so, if you're available. It wasn't a hard close. He didn't put his calendar. He said, I'd love to chat. And so I ended up calling him back and talking to him about what they did. And that is led to me talking to you right now because they booked this. That's podcast. how we got connected. That's yeah. how we got connected. <laughs> so I share this example because it's relevant to our conversation, but it was it was a brilliant example of ta- start with them in the research you've done, bring it back to the problem that other people are facing that you solve, and then your point of view, your value proposition, your linkage, whatever you want to call it on where you can help, and then your call to action. So he did that in a brilliant way. It was short, sweet, and, and I ended up doing business with him. And I got another similar type of approach from a videographer. And I'm going to use him too, because I'm doing these keynotes now, and I want to make a nice demo reel. So you know, I think you do have to be relevant, and, and timing is important too. But you can be relevant and get the timing right if you you know, simply subscribe to Google alerts and you see what people are saying. And then you reach out right after this public thing comes out, right? A lot of these, you know, the stuff they're saying is, is available. So that can be timely and relevant, but it starts with really getting that message right and having a point of view that is actually, okay, this is relevant. This makes sense. I'm in this boat. Yeah. I'll talk to this person. I think if you hit someone, even with the perfect message, it's not relevant. That's why it's really important to share what you do versus this vague, you know, we help companies drive revenue and increase their market share. Okay, great. How do you do it? Right. So in this example, they said how they do it. We outsource and, and we let you save your time by putting you on relevant podcasts or launching your own if it's something you want to do. So I thought, you know, I, I've had a few like this, but that was one that I, I like to reference because, you know, it was very clean and short and I ended up doing business with the guys. So it worked. One of the things I noticed, because you showed me a couple other emails too, is that I think if you follow a lot of content on LinkedIn about outbound, I think that people are overly picky about the copy. Yeah. That guy said, I'd love to. You always hear this stuff on LinkedIn. It's like, oh, don't say you'd love to do this. That's not authentic. Or I's versus we's and R's. And I, I'm a big fan of not using too many I's. Don't start every sentence with, I did this. I saw this. I want... It's more about how you're using the I. If you're saying, I saw, and then I'm talking about something that's related to you, I'm making that sentence about you versus 
I would like to do this thing. Or my name is Jason and I'm at Blissful Prospecting, a company, you know, it has more to do with the focus of the message. But do you think that people are way too picky about the specific wording of stuff and overly focused? I've looked at your emails too, and I'm like, no offense, I don't mean this in a bad way. It's not like the most perfectly well-written thing, but the content's killer, right? You pointed out something that's like really good. You connected it back to the problem, like you said. You talked about how you could help. What are your thoughts on it? I think you just answered your own, your own question and I would agree with you. It's not about the copy. In fact, I never had taken a copywriting class or looked at LinkedIn's prospecting methodology. For me, what matters more is the authenticity of the message and the relevance of the message rather than using I or we or you or how you're creating your call to action and saying, would you be open to or interested in or can we schedule time? I mean, I'm sure if you're doing a high volume of outbound that that stuff probably matters in terms of the metrics. And, you know, if you're creating sequences and cadences, you want to, you want to optimize it based on what the AI says is going to perform the best. Sure. But if it's not authentic, if it's not relevant, if it's not personalized, it can go out the window. And, and for my prospecting, you have to remember, I'm not, I'm choosing a couple people in the largest companies that I'm going after and I'm doing a ton of research. I'm not concerned with the copy. What I'm concerned is the linkage and getting the message and being relevant for them and being authentic. So I don't think the copy matters. I think if you're a BDR or maybe mid-market or SMB and you're just doing a huge volume, you know, sure, if you can set it up to optimize performance based on how you word things, that all makes sense. But for me, I never you know, followed any of those approaches. I didn't even know there was certain, there's just a lot of tooling now that helps, you know, identify like the gongs of the world where they can identify like what to say and how to say it. And I just never had any of the access to that. For me, it was really about being authentic and not trying to craft the perfect copy, but really trying to have the right content and the message that's going to be relevant. And, and I'm glad you picked up on that because I'm not going for semantics. Yeah. Love it. Dude, we are out of time, man. <laughs> it flew by. I appreciate you so much for coming on. How can people connect with you? Where can they learn more about what you're doing, your coaching? You post some badass LinkedIn content. What's uh, What can people do if they want to get more, uh, Ian? Yeah, number one is um, send me a DM on LinkedIn. Put a connection request. If you enjoyed the podcast, tell me that, and we can start a dialogue there. Every person who's listening right now connects on LinkedIn, you will get a message back from me with a link to my video newsletter where every week I send out a brand new sales training video and it's everything, every part of the sales cycle, and you'll get a link to my YouTube channel. So um, that's a great place to start. If you are interested in, in coaching or learning about my programs, my website is the best place to go. It's www.ianconiac.com slash contact. And there's a waitlist form on building a online coaching platform and group coaching platform that will be geared towards enterprise AEs to master the mindset, the habits, and the skill set needed to really perform at the highest level. And I'm targeting launch by end of January. So make sure you get on the wait list for that. It's www.ianconiac.com slash contact. And I am going to cap enrollment there. So that's where to find out about the coaching programs that are coming out. And, and uh, yeah, my YouTube has all my previous videos on there and it's just youtube.com slash Cognac. So hopefully you get some value out of the resources I, I've been putting out. Really appreciate you tuning in today. My biggest takeaway from this, again, is just this mindset piece. And I think that he calls it the change evolution and really understanding what needs to take place inside of an organization to create change and how risky 
that is and how much work it is for an executive and how you can support that change as a rep. That was my big takeaway. I appreciate you tuning in. One thing I really appreciate from you is wherever you're listening to the show, like, subscribe, leave a review if you're listening on iTunes. It helps us grow the show so that we can get this in front of more folks like yourself. And my one favor before you take off is, do you know one other person, a rep, a friend, your sales leader, whoever, that would benefit from listening to this podcast and this episode in particular? Share it with them. That would really mean a lot to me. And uh, we'll see you next episode.